Welcome to Regency Rumours, a show about Regency-era shows and films, plus related categories. As a British-American couple, we dive into the cultural differences on either side of the pond, and as writers, we discuss character, setting, plot, and more. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. And first, we would like to apologize for the fact that this episode is very late, like a week, more than a week late. So we decided to take a, a little bit of a holiday away on a farm. We thought we were going to... Don't gonna... tell people that. Why? You, you told them that we were having difficulties. I mean, to be fair. We were. Th- well, that's what I'm getting to. Oh, okay. We were having difficulties because we thought we would go on this holiday and we were like, you know what? We're going to record several episodes. It's going to be so great. We're going to, you know, get ahead and we're going to be able to record and edit. We got there and the ad for this place said Wi-Fi included and Wi-Fi was included, but it was like the worst Wi-Fi included. So we I, I spent most of the week tethered to my phone's mobile data because that was faster than the um, internet connection that the Airbnb had. I don't know what we thought that a farm would have good internet, but I thought it would at least at least have decent enough for us to be able to record and get something up. But that didn't happen. And really, I think in the long run, it was just a sign that we needed to take a step back for a few days to just relax and enjoy our time. And we are sorry that that meant that we didn't have something up on schedule and on time. So we are sorry for that. But now we're back to podcasting and we're excited. And thank you to everyone that keeps listening to the podcast and joining the Facebook group. This week is going to be a bit different. We are stepping forward in time into the Victorian era. Follow us as we discuss the pilot episode of The Nevers, which was written by Joss Whedon for HBO. We're not recapping the show fully like we have with with Bridgerton, but we're going to discuss what themes arose in the pilot episode and whether we think this is a must-watch or a definite skip for fans of the Regency era and fans of of Bridgerton. I'm going to be honest, this show is out of my comfort zone. Not not like in a bad way, but it's not a straight-up period drama. It's also fantasy, which is something I don't normally watch, but... Don't say it with such disdain. (laughs) I'm not saying it with disdain. It's just, it's not something I would normally be attracted to, which begs the question, how are we together? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yes, because I'm a troll. No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, Since we've gotten together, my mind has been opened up to a lot more fantasy and sci-fi. This was a little bit more down Jordan's alley in terms of the fantasy side of things. And I just thought this was such a great like mesh of some of our interests together. Um, So if you're a fan of the podcast, you'll know that I'm a massive period drama fan. And then Jordan is more of a sci-fi and fantasy fan. And together we've been exploring each other's interests when it comes to reading and watching films and television. Um, Jordan's had to watch so many Jane Austen adaptations. I think he's confused at this point to which, which one he's watching. Times. Yeah, it's... and I've watched Marvel stuff and Star Wars, and I'm hey, the, the Marvel thing wasn't just my fault. That was like everybody's thing in university. You went to the cinema, a hundred percent. But it's still, you know, to me, that's always been really confusing. Um, I've enjoyed it, but it, you know, it's not my first go-to thing. So it's been really cool to have something like The Nevers come out right when we're doing the podcast and for us to go, hmm, like this is something that we could talk about and kind of talk about our interests while doing the podcast. So we're excited that we're, you're going to be joining us today. 
if you're new to the podcast we do have a facebook group it's facebook.com slash regency rumors with a u where you can discuss anything bridgerton or period drama so join us there in the group if you would like it's a great way for people to be able to share articles and period drama news and also if anyone's got any suggestions or preferences on what we recap and talk about here on the podcast you can put it in a thread there please do subscribe to the podcast it really means a lot to us and it helps um, us to keep doing what we're doing so i'll be honest this is all new for me i feel like dorothy being plopped down out of kansas flying around in my tornado and now i've been dropped in oz that's how i feel and i'm like annie ann uncle henry what is this who are these people <laughs> um surprise i think it's funny because like surprisingly i grew up on wizard of oz and it was my favorite film as a kid so it is funny that a fantasy would have been like one of my favorite things but i think some of it is because it's like old classic movies type thing so don't know that's interesting that you know that was your first taste of fantasy yeah um i think it was a lot of people's right right mine um like a lot of my kind of classmates um growing up was lord of the rings yeah 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 (laughs) um so yeah so the nevers just before we go on too much further the nevers is uh, a victorian alternate history where we've got kind of historical events meshed with fantasy um, and that's what Kayla's talking about when she's saying it's all new to her yeah yeah I I mean like I'm I would say I'm well versed in watching kind of Victorian period dramas and reading fiction that's uh, Victorian but kind of adding in this almost like steampunk type world kind of new to me and so it's like it feels familiar and yet it it's not so which is one of the the key components of well-written fantasy really yeah having that sense of familiarity okay so i just wanted to say uh we're not going to be getting into any of this like josh whedon stuff josh 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 no h it's so hard for me though it's my accent i don't know okay so joss whedon he's been in the news a lot um i'm sure most people that are going to be watching the nevers or that have been looking forward to it they're gonna probably know who he is and he's been in the news and on on this podcast though we're gonna be comparing and um mentioning some of his other work in the past but we're we're not gonna go into any of the stuff that's been happening kind of with his personal life and on set and that sort of thing so so um yeah we're kind of divorcing the author from the text um, yeah a little bit which is kind of what we trained to do at university but we also just want to kind of like focus on the actual show it's just it's the best way of enjoying a show and kind of picking out themes and talking about the ways that it's similar to other texts that we do enjoy and two because there's clearly so many other people involved in this project exactly um but suffice to say um he is no longer involved with the nevers as a as a project and in fact um didn't have much to do with it beyond creating the concept and then writing i believe the pilot episode and directing it so beyond that he's not involved anyway so it doesn't really matter so there's a lot of people that are fans of buffy and firefly that i think have been excited about the nevers and then there's also some tv critics that are looking at the structure of the nevers and going hang on here this is really familiar to me i've not really seen anything of josh whedon's i've seen bits of firefly and 
not really understood it, to be honest. Um, so Jordan's going to take the reins a bit on this episode, and I'll be here to gawk at some of the beautiful dresses and discuss the scenery and some of the magicalness of this Victorian show. <laughs> um, definitely, I, I think it was definitely an interesting uh, one. Um, you know, I had no expectations going into this, and neither of us did. I, I will say that I am a, a fan of Firefly and Buffy and some other of the works created by this author so you know in that sense it was a little bit exciting um to kind of see that that style and that storytelling technique in this setting set in 1899 the nevers follows the story of the touched people who were given a gift when an anomaly appeared in the london skies in 1896 the touched are mostly women in an era that we know was still dominated by men and The Nevers seems like it's following similar female empowerment themes that Buffy the Vampire Slayer trod. The main characters of this series appear to be Mrs. Amalia True, a widow, and Miss Penance Adair, an inventor. Both Mrs. True and Mrs. Miss Adair are touched, and Mrs. True runs The Orphanage, a place for young touched girls to live safe from harm. I kind of want to just quickly interject at the beginning here and say that one of the things that I always find a little bit awkward with some of these fantasy shows is when taken out of context of the real world, which is something that I like to do because it takes a text kind of seriously that way. Um, some of the, the terms and names that the, the groups and characters have in that kind of are okay in that world. Yeah. But then when you kind of consider them in the modern context, it can be a bit odd. You mean the, the names touched. of these... Oh, yeah, I don't get, I didn't, I did not care for that term. There could have been, like, so many other things they could have named that. I mean, I mean, just think about that sentence that I wrote, and as I just read it, I kind of went, Ew, is, the orphanage is a place for young touched girls to live safe from harm. It's just, it's just an uncomfortable way, like. Isn't it? It's not that we're trying to read into that at all. It's just, no, like, oh. really, like, there's. I think when you have like a team of writers on stuff like this, you could go like, mm, you know what, let's change that. Let's make it something different. I think there just had to have been something else that they could have called it. It's really Also, the, the, the title of the show is The Nevers, but then the people are all called The Touched. And even the trailer for the, the show talks yeah. about The Touched quite a few times and then it's called The Nevers. So it definitely feels like there's a larger mystery involved here. And in fact, that's what a lot of the critics have kind of pointed out and said that is something that is a little bit confusing. Um, but, you know, we've only seen the first episode. We would have to watch more to kind of see where this goes. Um, but yeah, anyway. So the problem or the kind of the conflict of the setting is that ordinary folk are mobbing young women regularly as the touched are women, more often than not, as I said, um, out of fear that these weird and wicked talents that they now possess are from the devil. As we see in Act 1, um, a family chains their daughter, Myrtle, to her bed to prevent her from spreading her illness to the other children in the household. The mother says to the two main characters, that her daughter is bewitched by Satan, spewing Satan's words. It turns out that the girl is actually speaking many languages at once, uh, Russian, Mandarin, and some Turkish. Um, so it's kind of like um, her ability is, is kind of some form of tongues, where she's speaking all languages at once. Yeah. As Mrs. True and Miss Adair speak with the parents downstairs, there's a commotion in the bedroom, and Mrs. True discovers that men are attempting to kidnap Myrtle. 
And this is where we realise that Mrs. True is no simple lady, as she absolutely destroys the men who are attempting to kidnap the child. This is kind of our uh, inciting incident, in a way. Yeah. It's setting up the kind of the larger conflict. It's letting us know not only are people kind of attacking these younger women, um, they're also being kidnapped. And this is the first instance that our main characters have kind of seen that. So I just want to start out by saying, like, right off the bat, in terms of setting, this is a totally different kettle of fish than Bridgerton. But, I mean, obviously they're, they're different shows, but whereas Bridgerton, we've talked about, it does have this fairy tale feel. With the characters, there's bright colors, uh, elaborate costumes. The Nevers takes you straight to that kind of industrial feel of London. So all the things that Bridgerton was actively trying to avoid that we were talking about, you know, dirty streets and people with ragged Work clothes. Houses. Yeah, those sorts of things. Um, the Nevers is right in the middle of all that, right? So, you know, we're talking at a time, 1896 in London, we're talking the heat of the, the Industrial Revolution, you know, factories are growing. This is opening up to women being in more working situations. Children have been a part of the workforce and the conditions and the pay for these factories and mills are they're just atrocious and, and dangerous. So we're not really seeing bustling images of women going to the modiste and out to the ball. We're seeing women working in the streets. We're seeing how damp and dark and smoky London can be. And it's much more, more real in terms of the setting than Bridgerton tries to be. But like when the father mentions that he's annoyed that his daughter is sick or that there's something wrong with her because the other children are too young to work because of the laws that are in place, we see that some sort of re reform has happened now in terms of women, uh, children and work because there was a time when, when children, very young children, would go to work at some of these factories and really scary, really bad conditions um, and there was kind of like no laws against it and then at some point uh, that did change but even then you're still talking children going at like 12 and 15 um, to these workhouses when you live in a time like that and you have five or six children and you've got like one that's old enough to go and work and you can't afford things you know you're going to be annoyed that that kid can't go to work, which is horrible yeah. to think of now. But at the time, it was like, well, they can work and, and bring food to the table. So they need to be out there working no matter how young. So I know this is this is 30 years. This is kind of set 30 years later, but it does have this kind of very Dickens London vibe to me or even Elizabeth Gaskell with North and South. Industrialization is at full force, which is exciting and it's groundbreaking. There's all sorts of inventions and technology being made. But with dramas like these, we can see how it can affect people on the ground level and the actual working spaces, which I think is really important to see, but it's just, it's not easy to watch. I like seeing the advancements that we've that have happened toward during the Victorian era and some some of those I've seen in shows before and it's been really cool but then you think of all the sacrifices that had to be made and the working conditions that people had to go through for those inventions to be made or for like mass production and that sort of thing and it's heartbreaking to watch the like reality of it so um mm. it's really I'm torn with those sorts of things. It's neat to... I think that's the whole point of North and South, and I really want you to watch that at some point. 
is to be able to see that like, gosh, there's so much happening and the world is moving and all those things. But wait, like, how are we also like hurting people and and not, you know, considering workers pay and and health and all sorts of things like that. So, yeah, it's um, hard to watch. Right. Just after Mrs. True discovers the um, attackers trying to kidnap the child, she tackles one through first floor window. And she <laughs> she literally launches out the window, lands on top of one of the would-be kidnappers. She discovers that there are masked riders all about the house, uh, and the young girl is not safe. So basically they rush to the carriage that they arrived in um, with Myrtle in tow, and they manage to get aboard and away. Um, but in that resulting chase scene, uh, we see that Miss Adair's inventions are way beyond the time period as the carriage bursts apart and an electronic automobile, three-wheeled um, and with an, like, an exposed crackling engine at the front, comes shooting out and whisks the three women away. Oh, and the driver of the carriage was also a clockwork automaton. During these scenes, we, all, we also catch a glimpse of Mrs. True's ability and she can catch small parts of the future and kind of experience those before they happen. When in the house, speaking to the parents, she flashes forward to see herself lying on her back and some kids looking down at her. In the getaway automobile, she sees that they're going to the opera that evening. It's a useful ability, and it's not something that um, Mrs. True relies on. More on that later. It's in this opening act that we're introduced to the steampunk-esque world, which Kayla mentioned before, of the Nevers, where stuffy old men that are all Lord this and that sitting in darkened rooms discussing the threats to the Empire and young women being blamed for something that isn't really their fault. So yeah, I I was gonna like start out by saying I've never really watched anything or read anything that is steampunk. Can you just kind of, kind of give me like an overview of what that is and why why is that so tied to kind of the Victorian era? Steampunk is a rather wide genre. In some ways, you could say it achieved a kind of mainstream attention to a little like punk in general, really. Almost everyone would be able to imagine what steampunk is when we say the word, I imagine. Whereas if I asked you to tell me what diesel punk or solar punk are, um, you'd probably be a lot harder pressed. I have no idea what those things are. Right. So, in general, steampunk refers to a retro-futuristic setting in which humanity never progressed beyond the 19th century steam power, because steam power in these settings is able to do much more than we ever got it to do in reality. For example, you'll see a lot of steam-powered automatons, or uh, robots and machines, uh, goggles that have got cogs and gears on them that are special in some way, and airships powered by steam engines and massive balloons. Steampunk represents the Industrial Revolution and all that it brought to civilization turned up to 11. Steampunk as a movement refers to the decor and fashion choices of the 19th century, and plus that retrofuturism that I mentioned before. Basically Victorian fashion plus clockwork technology. Lots of long boots, waistcoats, top hats and goggles with a healthy dose of uh, pipes, clockwork and other kind of like steampunky aesthetics. It's it's one of those things that you kind of, you know it when you see it. Um, yeah. Just do a, a Google of steampunk fashion and you'll probably see tons of examples. And as soon as you do, it's like it's a lot of brass work and, and stuff on top hats. Do you know what I feel like steampunk kind of is? It's what Victorian people thought the future was going to be. I'm just thinking of some of the things that I've seen where they'd put out in the newspaper of like these super hot air balloons uh, that people are flying around in and stuff like that, like these blimps and stuff. Yeah. And so to That's me, like, 
Yeah. To me, like in some way, um, a lot of this is just kind of a heightened idea of what they thought the world in the future would be like. Yeah. So in some ways, that's kind of what retro futurism means. Like it's retro because it's of the past. It's it's steam power, but it's futurism because it's kind of talking about futuristic technologies and inventions using that that power right um if you google or perhaps if you've already seen um leonardo da vinci's depictions of kind of like i was just gonna talk about him yeah so like yeah he had flying machines that were basically helicopters but they use like spirals of of like wooden and canvas rotary things that's all very steampunky and like steampunk writers will take kind of inspiration from that yeah. I don't know why, but people are so interested in that. I mean, speaking of that, I just finished Leonardo, which is on Amazon Prime now, and it kind of delves into some of his inventions and um, things like that. And it really does remind, remind me of like all these like cogs and, and these machines that would make one thing do the other and, and that sort of thing. And for whatever reason, like I think we as a society are just like, we love to see that sort of thing. It's, it's really cool to to see and and in some ways i think because things like computers aren't aren't as accessible to like the mind's eye of like how it works on these little chips and stuff like how how it operates i can't look at a computer and like see exactly how everything would work together to make the computer work i think that like steampunk type inventions are really cool visually to people for people to look at because mm. it's a it's giving them a way to see how something functions with their eyes yeah i guess so like when typically in like a steampunk uh, setting you'll see a lot of kind of like exposed workings yeah. which is exactly what you're talking about like ironically for a genre called steampunk clockwork has a huge place in the setting um many automatons may be powered by steam um, but it's the clockwork mechanics that allow them to move. So the real futurism aspect comes from the aspects of steampunk technology that we didn't have. And in lots of ways, we still don't have. So that getaway car or automobile, because um, it's not really a car um, that I mentioned before, isn't possible with today's technology. Yeah. Or <laughs> Victorian technology. And we can tell from like the sound design of the episode that it was a purely electric vehicle, often in this setting called galvanic technology and it was a rather futuristic design way more futuristic than anything in the 1900s in terms of like the model t and stuff in terms of those early cars they didn't have like thin material for their cars and stuff and they still built them out of steel very like solid bodies yeah whereas this this getaway vehicle that we see them escape in is all like sleek and thin and stuff which kind of just wouldn't happen but you know never mind it's it's part of the magic she's just a very good inventor thank you very much well that's the whole point later in the episode um she reveals uh, this is miss adair she reveals what her gift is and she can see um electronic currents and so that allows her to fix and make things much much easier than someone who can't because reasons magic but um <laughs> basically she bu- she builds an electric car in 1899 because she can see how electro electricity runs through things but yeah so in a way this advanced technology is steampunk's magic as in it doesn't work as physics tells us it can therefore it's magic it's not always dressed up as magic in these settings, um, but sometimes a steampunk story will have explicit magic too, like the touch. Did all of that make sense? I've known what this genre is and 
for so long that sometimes I forget what I take for granted. Yeah, well, I think the creators of this show also took that for granted because they assumed the lot of us would just catch on immediately with some of this stuff. There was some things I definitely didn't catch on to, like, right off from the bat. But, yeah, your explanation of Steampunk, it, it makes sense to me. I'm intrigued by it. And I think that was the whole point of them wanting to create something like this. I don't know how many other Steampunk shows are out there. Um, live action, anyways. Shows, I can't think of a single one there you go so i think they were trying to show that of like hey look how cool this is um and especially in a day and age like right now where we're on the tip of people having uh, driverless cars and and everything um it seems like the right kind of time to bring out a show like this hey that the carriage that they were riding in was a driverless carriage yeah. i have no idea how it was i mean i guess the horses knew where they were going i don't know magic no, I mean, no, but that, that's the point. Like, in in fantasy and sci-fi shows, there's something called um, hand-wavium, which comes from the term hand-wave. So, you know, when a magician waves his hand over something, it's it shows the magic, right? I mean, like a stage magician. So hand-wavium is when you just go, you just, you wave your hand and you go, a magician did it. Yeah. Right? So how how does the carriage work? Magic. Forget about it. Forget about it. So, as far as openers go, I think that it was a really exciting one. Uh, it set up the conflict rather well. There's, um, I haven't actually mentioned it yet, but there's a serial killer on the loose, Malady. And she is a touched um, person too. And it's, it's causing all of the non-violent touched to be treated with much suspicion. And Mrs. True's uh, basically determined to save them all. The threat to the girls of the orphanage will clearly put Mrs. True at odds with many people. But the real kicker is that there's a touched woman who can identify slash cause people that are touched to be identified um, by her singing voice. And whilst at the opera, she is kidnapped by Malady, who did just so happen to turn up to the opera on the same night that Mrs. True. And I was surprised were. by that. I mean, normally when you watch stuff with like serial killers, um, you don't you either don't see them. Or they don't show up publicly somewhere. So yeah. it's interesting that we like have her face. Everybody knows what she looks like. She's not some like enigma. She's not Jack Jack the Ripper. Would nobody knows who she is? So I think that part is is kind of in some ways a bit scarier to yes. know. Yes, yeah, um, it's it's a known threat. And it is that kind of you know nineteenth century hysteria, crazy woman out of the asylum type thing. She is the only person who remembers what happens. And so it's kind of like Cassandra, um, you know, the Greek myth. Um, so Cassandra was a, a seer, an oracle, um, but she was cursed to, to never be believed. So all of her visions were true, but nobody would ever believe her. And so in that, in that sense, it's malady is, is tragic because she knows what happened to everybody. Um, she is she is clearly insane as well, though. Yeah, she's gone a bit loopy because of it. She was probably a bit loopy before, <laughs> but um, but but also nobody 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 believes her and thinks that she's kind of more insane than she is because she keeps insisting yeah. on this version of events that nobody else remembers. Yeah. So yeah, um, I think it was definitely an interesting opening. 
but yeah, I mean, how did how did you feel about the opening, considering that you know you didn't really know the genre and stuff? Um, some of the stuff was a bit fast paced for me, but I really liked uh this kind of opening. It kind of reminds me of Gentleman Jack in the way that it was very snappy. The women were very in charge of their surroundings. It was well choreographed, opening with not a minute to spare, using the settings and some of the props to really catch your eye. One of the things I like about the new period dramas that are coming out is how much they use some of these props and the settings and everything in your ears. I love that whole thing of like being able to hear people put on their gloves or their well-fitted coat, their top hat, um, a cane going against a cobbled street. Um, those sorts of, you know, a, a pocket watch opening and closing. It's those sorts of sounds that we don't hear today that when they do these, and especially with openings, they use that a lot nowadays in the openings of of these period dramas. And there's something so aesthetically pleasing about hearing those things and watching people put on an outfit to go out for the day and, and not just like see them do it, but what it feels like to, to hear the creaky floor as somebody goes across it or putting out a candle or whatever. It's, it's, it's not just what you're seeing with your eyes, but it's, um, it's kind of the snappiness of, of seeing like a person in charge walking down the street. They're putting their gloves on. And like I said, you know, the top hat goes on for whatever reason. We just love hearing it. Like I love yeah. I mean, hearing it. The Foley work is really good. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. From the get go, we see that the people that are going to be making an impact that are commanding the scenes are strong, smart, capable women. I love seeing that. Um, you know, right from the top, we feel like these are the people that are possibly going to be kind of superhero-like in this. And it's it's really cool to see these women doing, like, flips and fight scenes and stuff. I feel like, for some reason, I get more invested when I see that kind of from the onset. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's women fighting and, like, saving the world. And then um, it really does get me, like, clued in um, for whatever reason. I'm also annoyed that I'm excited about there being a female serial killer. Like, that's a really weird thing. It's an awful thing to be excited about. But I guess it's just this kind of different thing. And unfortunately, in their own way, serial killers hold some sort of power over society. They have done where they terrorize people, they terrorize the police, and they know that. It's, it's a weird kind of warped power when they haven't been caught. But to see this be a, a woman and not a man, um, it's just kind of interesting and you can tell it's kind of compelling and it, and it kind of brings you in a bit. Um, the costumes are obviously awesome. I was telling Jordan when we were watching it that I just love to see how fitted everything is. The fashion now, nowadays, it seems so like boho, like a lot of, there's a lot of loose fitting, flowy styles, which is, you, you know, cute. It's fine. But I just love to see these waistcoats and how they fit these women perfectly and these jackets fit to their bodies. It's just so like gorgeous to look at. So the costume designer, Michelle Clapton, uh, was also the costume designer for Game of Thrones. So wide range of talent there. In a Refinery29 article that um, I read about the show that was really cool, um, she talked about the costume choices, uh, which I thought was really interesting. She talked about the colors she used, uh, specifically for Amaya and Penance. For Amalia, she chose hues like burgundy, dark brown, green, and blue for her costumes in order to symbolize her tough exterior and fighter mentality. In contrast, she made a, like a softer color palette for penance, so more neutral colors like caramel and oatmeal um, 
combined with pastel pinks and blues, um, I really like that color palette. But she she said that she was like leaning into this whole new cottage core thing, which I think is really smart to do. You know, it's very on trend. Everybody's kind of getting into this, like getting back into nature and wanting to wear clothes that are like little women and stuff. And so um, I think she was very on trend creating something like that. She she wanted to kind of use their costumes as another form of storytelling as a way to show that these two are polar opposites. So like Amaya has premonitions while penance can visually uh, visualize energy currents, which she used to create inventions like motor cars and tasers uh, hidden inside of umbrellas. And what she said that I thought was so cool is she said, you're not often best friends with your girlfriends because she's exactly like you. And I like that element. I was saying to Jordan, I was like, I, I think all too often in some of these shows or, you know, even in life, people can can think of women kind of being similar all the time. And it's so cool to see we we can see it in duos like Sherlock Holmes and Watson. These men are are two different, you know, kinds of men and everything. And there's a lot of times where the where there's these male duos and we don't expect them to be the same but for a lot of the times with women when they come in in pairs and stuff it's like they're carbon copies of each other or it's you know their sex appeal is all we really see or whatever and so it's really cool that she's she's kind of tapped into like a lot of times what one of the best aspects of female friendship is that women aren't the same as each other and it's really cool to look at your friend and be like you're so cool and then be like no you're so cool and you kind of like bring out the best in each other and I think it's just cool that she was trying to use that through their their costumes to show one of them was a bit softer and the other one was a bit more bristly but they were still kind of crime fighters together you know with Batman and Robin they're different they've got different aesthetics but there they are together fighting the good fight I guess um so I just I thought that was really cool like I don't often think about the fact that clothing and costuming is another way to to vividly tell a story but it it clearly um is a well thought out thing especially for a show like this um to show these two two women's contrasting personalities and but how that they can come together i i really like it when we know that the design of the show is intentional yeah. like that it never ceases to amaze when you see inside the creative processes of other of uh, other artists, um, you know, whichever medium they work with. Uh, in this case, we're talking about fashion. It's disappointing when we see something that clearly hasn't been designed well or chosen with a reason. Yeah. I guess in some ways it's like the whole literature, like blue curtain thing. You want to know that the creators of something have put care and forethought into the thing that they're making. And you want to know that all the little what like what all those little facts are and you know the stories hidden away from the main camera as we go through the story. Like, ooh, why did she choose to wear that? And it's a great question. And it's something that only, you know, diehard fans might care about at the end of the day, but you definitely feel it if whatever they were wearing it was like what the production team had stuffed in an old closet somewhere. And it, it, that intentionality matters. The audience probably won't notice it generally, but that's the mark of good design. So initial impressions for me are kind of really good with The Nevers. Um, I, I like this time period. I think the visuals are fantastic and the writing has been solid so far. I don't really expect differently from this show as Firefly, like I mentioned, is one of my favourite shows and the writing in it is absolutely stellar. Let's hope that HBO doesn't mess up the Nevers as much as Fox messed up Firefly, though. Well, I 
you know, I know Firefly's been gone for several years now, but I think in some... <laughs> a few more than several. Oh, bless your heart. Um, but I do think with HBO, at least think with HBO that if HBO messes something up, then it's like a real tragedy because they've got the money behind it. Like I know with a, a first season, they're not going to put as much because like people have talked before about Game of Thrones having one budget with season one and a completely different budget of two, two or three seasons in. But still, even that, the first season is going to have a way higher budget than something like Fox is going to have, right? So, um, well, uh, yes, yeah, I guess I see what you're saying. But it wasn't necessarily the budget that they messed up with Firefly. No, no, no. I'm, I, I get that. I'm just saying, like, in, in terms of like, if HBO messes up a, a show, um, like this, and has this massive budget, and people are like, it doesn't look right, and you, you casted it wrong, or whatever, you, you know, you didn't get the right writers, then it's like, then it's really like a tragedy because HBO was is the type that they normally put full force into these oh, projects that they do. So like they're the chosen one. Yeah. And, and you know, they shouldn't disappoint us. Yeah. I'm making lots of references today that I'm pretty sure are flying <laughs> over your head and most of the listeners, <laughs> yes. but never mind. Um, that was a star Wars prequel trilogy, uh, reference, but never mind. So, um, another thing that I'd like to kind of mention is, um, the magic <laughs> as listeners of the show will kind of know, I am a huge fan of fantasy and science fiction, so magic is my thing. It's the the thing um, that I write the most and um, play games with the most. And Kayla loves the Regency period. I love all things magic. And I, I don't really know why, but I'm fascinated with the depiction of magic in fiction. Always have been and always will be. Um, this kind of a show is basically an, an historical uh, superhero show. Yeah. Anytime that a character is given a single ability, they turn into the superhero archetype. Um, just because we don't always call them superheroes um, and just because we don't call superheroes magical doesn't mean that functionally they aren't magical because they are. So in this case, we're calling the magic users touched. And it's, uh, like I said, it's kind of like a curious phrase, but the, the viewer of the Nevers, it will kind of make sense come the end of the pilot but for in-universe characters there's no real reason for it um and it's only something i kind of thought about as i was writing up these notes it's kind of a minor issue but i do hope it's something that gets explored later on the the anomaly that we saw the, the way that they depict it in the show is really interesting early on all we see is that there's something in the sky and we see the point of view of, like somebody looking at the characters as they all look up into the sky okay so we know that something's up there something's happening but we don't know what it's not until the the end of the episode that we realize that not only is there an object in the sky and it looks like a very kind of strange um spaceship uh, like an alien artifact but it doesn't really look like a spaceship it's hard to describe unless you actually see it and this is a spoiler really i guess basically the reason i bring it up is because th these particles um, they're kind of like motes of pollen are released by this this object in, in the sky and they fall down and they touch the people who gain these abilities and they, they're absorbed into their bodies. So we know why they're called the touched, because they've been touched by this alien pollen. <laughs> but none of the characters in the setting know this, because as we've mentioned, Malady is the only character who remembers yeah. what happened. So why are they called the touched? Like, it makes no sense in-universe. 
Uh, yeah. See, I, I don't know. Uh, and unless it's explored later on, and I, like I said, I hope it is, but it's little things like that. The intentionality matters. Now, with a Whedon show, those kinds of things usually do make sense. However, as some critics have pointed out, Whedon shows often need a long time to pay off. Yeah. He's been taken out now before the, the end of the first season. We might never see those answer those questions answered in a way that he was going to i just hope that that whoever takes it on i really hope that they kind of do take some of these things on and kind of figure those out i think one of the things i was thinking about is i think nowadays um writers are becoming like really flashback happy in a way that's kind of like ooh, get to the interesting bits so we can catch people's eye and whether or not we properly explain it or not it's not that big of a deal like I want to show the points that are going to like get to people's eyes as quickly as we can, because I think in a lot of ways we are in this like social media world where it's instant gratification. And you do see with, with movies, like I was thinking about this the other day, like how slow Westerns used to be. And now if you're not getting to a train robbery within like 10 minutes of the beginning of the film, it's really hard to get people's attention for, for certain types of films. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like some of these shows and movies they can they can miss good storytelling by trying to jump so much back and forth without really a lot of explanation. It's like, ooh, we'll just we'll make this like really cool and we'll just show this scene of her doing this or her doing that and we just won't explain it. And it's like, well, as cool as that is in theory, it doesn't actually explain what it needs to explain for me to get into this story so like I I don't really have any fantasy examples but for me two period dramas that have done that recently has been the latest Jane Eyre which is 2014 and then the latest Little Women so the latest Jane Eyre it the very beginning of the film immediately goes to almost the end of the movie I mean the end of the book and it has these multiple multiple flashbacks well if you're a fan of Jane Eyre great like you know exactly what's going on If you're not a fan, it's going to be really hard for you to put these puzzle pieces together and for it to really feel like it's impactful in the same way that the book would be chronologically. Same way with Little Women. Little Women was, I mean, I loved it and it was great, but it was also chopped up from beginning to end to middle, beginning, all these different flashbacks, like loads of different flashbacks back and forth. And if you're not overly familiar with the story, you can kind of be like, ah, what happened? What happened? But it's like, it does feel like to me that the writers are like, it's not good the way it was. We need loads of flashbacks and we need ones that are going to catch people's attention right away, whether or not we really explain it. I'm not saying that flashbacks are bad or that they shouldn't be used, but it really feels like nowadays in order to what they think is catching people's attention, we need to throw these flashbacks in their loads so that in the beginning, it, it feels like it pays off for us when, when really like people are just confused. Okay, so that's it's definitely an interesting take. Somewhat agree, but I somewhat disagree. Okay. This this has kind of been talked about in um, writing for television um, critical theory that with the kind of the advent of the golden age of television, which is kind of around the early 2000s-ish with like kind of like Mad Men and that kind of era onwards, we started, and 24 is a good example, but we started getting television which no longer assumed that the read that the viewer sorry was incapable of figuring things out it used to be that everything was spelled out for you as the audience gets more versed in 
storytelling and, and in particular storytelling with with a medium so in this case television or film you you no longer need to explain things in the exact same way because if you do people are going to just be like well i know what this is and you, but you're taking five minutes to tell me whereas you could a good example is you have a scene where somebody puts on a coat grabs a suitcase or a bag walks out of their door the next scene there sh- there's a, there's a, a door on a, on a yellow cab shutting the next scene the cab is pulling up at somewhere and they get out the next scene is an airplane taking off and the next scene is an airplane landing and then the scene after that we're in a new country in a completely new scene and they're talking to someone now we know what's happened they've just had an airplane journey that it took hours and they got from a to b instead of taking minutes worth of time to explain the character got from a to b or whatever you just show it through these flashes and sometimes you literally all you need to do at the start of an episode of something is show a plane touching down and then you go oh cool we've we've gone somewhere different from where we where we were in the first place those shortcuts it's all part of the language of visual storytelling whilst i understand what you're saying it's also wouldn't make sense for a modern production whose audience is going to understand a lot of this stuff to kind of explain it all from the get-go because then you will be losing people in a lot of ways the whole flashback thing that you've mentioned i agree too many flashbacks can be really bad i I totally agree but in this case it was more of a it was a setting up of an, an, an enigma and this mystery it wasn't necessarily a flashback I agree with you. I don't necessarily think we need everything spelled out to us. And I do think that a lot of everyday people are very aware of how the film, how film production works way more than they used to do, how, you know, storytelling works, that sort of thing, Um, which is why people get so involved online or so annoyed that endings weren't the way that they wanted it to be and storytelling isn't the way they want it to be. But I get what you're saying. It's it is showing this like enigma for a show like this. But one of the things that I disagree with with so many flashbacks is to do with character development. For me, like I'll go back to, to Jane Eyre. Well, they show some of these heartbreaking scenes for Jane Eyre at the beginning where she's away from Mr. Rochester. Um, she's ran off. She has no money. She's been found homeless and hasn't had food for days. We see this kind of her languishing and, and the pain that she's gone through. And I really think the only people that are going to understand that at the beginning of a film are people that have read the book. So to me, in terms of character development, I don't give a crap about this character right if I've never known this story I don't really give a crap about this character so I don't really I'm not invested in her story and going oh gosh like look at this woman five minutes in she like I'm so connected I feel bad for her do you know what I mean no a hundred percent and I agree and it's something that a lot of early screenwriters struggle with um and it's something that you have to kind of teach students quite a lot is if you if you kind of you try and do this really like powerful emotional hit too early it doesn't work like you've just mentioned but at the same time i, I haven't seen the version of jna you're talking about but i think i would have to disagree with you slightly that you know people aren't going to understand what's going on and aren't going to get it i'm not it. saying like, that they're not going to understand i'm just saying they they won't necessarily connect with it yeah but sympathize th- th- empathize they empathize, they, they yeah. will 
just in a different way. I mean, yeah. but the thing is, you're not a good judge of that, unfortunately, because you've already read the book and you've seen yeah. all the different adaptations. So, like, really, the best the best test of that will be to show me it and to see how I respond to it. Yeah, maybe because I haven't seen any of the others. Yeah. I don't. I don't think we've watched Jane. I have we? We have. I specifically oh. sat you down and said, "This is my favorite book." Now we're gonna watch the miniseries, and you were like, "Okay," and I'm like. Put your phone down. Pay attention because this really means something to me. And you're like, of course I will. And now you're saying you don't even remember watching it with me. Look, we've talked about this before. Oh, Lord I, have I have like a, I have a face blindness when it comes to period drama. Clearly, that's not even regions. Okay. Anyways, we're gonna we- move on, guys. We're moving on. It's fine. Okay. So, <laughs> no, but anyway, I mean, like, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. I, and I agree. Like, um, I'm not saying these flashbacks are bad. I'm just saying, like, we have become so flashback heavy. I think nowadays. With stuff that I'm like, I don't mind them. But then half the time, too, it ends up that we see these flashbacks. And then an episode or two in, we have to rewatch the whole flashback again. Because they know people have not remembered what is happening. So they're like, let's just show it again now when it's relevant again. And I'm like, okay. I think that depends on the show. Oh, 100%. I don't know if this will do that. But I'm just saying that's annoying to me sometimes, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So this is is the the mark of... Because again, what we've got to remember is that not all television, and unfortunately, particularly not all science fiction and fantasy, is written to the same standards and same degree of expertise. Right. Okay. So when when you've got a show that's complicated like this, and it uses lots of flashback and stuff, if it's not well executed, then yeah, 100%, it's going to be a hot mess. If, if again, if Fox hadn't messed with the... the airing order of the episodes of firefly would have made total sense but they switched around the different orders of the episodes and things and and so it was it was confusing for audiences but if you watch it in the proper order you know, i've got i basically i've got confidence that if if the first season of the nevers was written in the same way as the first season of firefly it will pay off okay. but the problem is is that as with firefly it needed more than a single season to mm-hmm. truly pay off and it never got that um, so we'll see. We'll see. I mean, HBO, like like we said, has got a bit more staying power than Fox did at the time. Fox was was relying on those numbers. Um, yeah. Those, those people watching bums in seats every uh, week. We don't have that problem here um, as much anyway. Did you find... Did you find like some of those visual things like confusing, like the magic element? Someone like me doesn't have this whole like setup of fantasy, like a background knowledge. So it can be hard. I just feel like there's a lot of things that they expect me to know if I watch fantasy. And if not, just like get on the roller coaster and hopefully we'll all get there at the same time. So am I just a bit thick or is it kind of normal to expect your audience to quickly kind of get some of these some of the magic and just accept it along the way some things are going to want to kind of explain the science and the 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 reason behind things a little bit more but this isn't really that kind of a show as soon as you hear the synopsis of the nevers or see the trailer you're going to know that there's these magical elements because they show them and so then you're going to kind of go cool there's magic in it and then you're just going to accept it and move on you know if if a person pulls fire out of thin air and throws it around you can't go well hang on a minute that that you can't do that i'm not going to watch the show now because if you do then you're kind of missing out on the whole premise so yeah i i guess for me it's just it's just how that's brought to me like one of the things i was going to talk about is another serial killer fantasy victorian show that's a 
very specific genre. And I guess in some ways I didn't even think about that, but Carnival Row is a little bit steampunky. But anyways. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But a bit, I bit had... more on the fantasy side, isn't it? It It is in terms of like there's, I think there's like orcs and fairies and things, but very similar setting. Yes. Um, it has its own world, but it's Victorian through and through in terms of the costume and, and kind of the way the setting is and the way society is set up. But that wasn't confusing at all for me. I got it. I got the rules. I got who the bad guys were. I got what the motivations were the, from the characters were pretty much right off the bat. So wait, so, are you saying that when the men show up with masks on their faces, you can't go, hey, they're the buddies? No, I know they're the bad guys, but I don't know who they're really working for. Like there was a, a Guardian art article that basically said like how they introduce this world and who the bad guys is is confusing they don't really explain it to you they just keep saying like those people are they and they're coming for our women and it's like who are they who like who are you talking about so it's not necessarily that the story is bad or anything like that it's just that I guess for me because I'm I'm kind of definitely a fantasy newbie if I can watch one show you know, Carnival Row and be fine and not have any problems with knowing what's going on. Is that really about me or is it about the Nevers not setting it up in a way that's more accessible? Like, I don't See, know. Um, I haven't read that article. I would be very interested to know if the author of the article uh, knows fantasy. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, because to me, there was no confusion whatsoever. Earlier-ish in, in the episode, we have a scene, like I said, of this like smoky dark room where all these Lord What's-His-Faces are having a chat about this epidemic, basically, of devilry and, and whatnot. Um, and that's basically like this. They weren't in the government. I think some of them were close to like the, the Prime Minister and stuff. Um, but they're all basically talking about how they're going to fix this problem that's hit England. And they're talking about like, oh, you know, people are attacking women and stuff. And you go... Whenever they then say they, you kind of just go, yeah, cool. People are attacking women. Like, yeah, but not cool. Sorry, that came out a bit weird. But no, but I guess like from one of the things that I was confused about is when they were saying they, I was like, okay, are they talking about that these touched women are kind of the rotten apples of society, or that they've been taken by people who are rotten apples of society? Like, I I think there's this confusing thing of like normally in a Victorian society, women who would have been considered touched or something that happened to them, they would have been kind of the outcast of society type thing. They would have been seen as part of the bad parts of society. And so this idea that there's another force out there that are coming to get these women who are already considered the bad parts of society, it it's a weird thing. Like, okay. So, so you, you are, you are merging two things together here. So, when those men, the lords, are talking, they're they're actually complaining about the touched, right? So okay. they're saying that the touched are bad. But what they're saying is that the mob are attacking just random women. Okay. Right? And so basically they're doing the typical Victorian, well, we need to protect the women type thing because upstanding women of society are being attacked because people are, oh, well, the women are, like, malady is a woman. and And we mentioned before, like, malady turns up and so she's visible but at the same time a lot of people don't know what malady looks like they just know that a female serial killer is on the loose basically that's setting up the the base level conflict is lots of women are being basically attacked um by random mobs of men i guess because the example we see of that is someone who is touched that i'm like okay well 
is it that this mob is coming for only the touched women or just all women like no 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 so like they they specifically say that like lots of women are being attacked then amalia and penance or mrs true and, and miss adair they run an orphanage for touched women um well not just women for for touched people because some men are as well they are specifically concerned with going and protecting the touched and bringing them back to the orphanage it's not until they go to see myrtle that anybody realizes that the touched are being kidnapped so that's that's what i'm saying before okay. you, you're merging two things together this masked group of men who are kidnapping myrtle at the beginning nobody knew that was happening until that moment okay see that wasn't clear to me that wasn't clear um so yeah so so anyway like that's that's basically there's there's two or three levels of conflict in in the show that we've seen set up in the pilot episode we've got malady and her crew of misfits who are she's serial killing people then we've got random mobs of people who are frightened and scared of malady who are attacking random women who they think are touched but they're not always and then we also have this masked group of, of men who are kidnapping the touched and we find out at one point in the episode that basically there's like a mad scientist guy who's experimenting on the touched right and that's he basically seems to be the person hiring the people to go and kidnap people so anyway like there's there's quite a lot of threads just quite a lot of go going on for a first episode i guess well, I know, and this is what I, this is what people in in reviews and stuff are talking about in terms of it being confusing. It kind of isn't for me. I, I I like all those threads. I kind of go, yeah, cool. There's this thread, there's this thread, and this thread, and then I get it. And probably is because I'm used to that kind of storytelling. It depends on what audience they're trying to draw in, and I guess um, hiring someone like Josh Whedon, there's a good chance that they're like, we've got no interest in um, drawing in the period drama people because like that's not really our audience so we don't really care but at the end of the day like somebody like me is going to see a trailer for something like this and go oh cool victorian period drama and then on top of that go oh well there's some magic i could probably take that on do you know what i mean and so it's like in yeah. some ways that could be a bit excluding because it it is expecting the people that are used to this to just um get on with it and maybe people who don't normally watch fantasy like you'll just have to like catch up i guess i don't know um so but in a lot of ways it's it's probably you know just aimed at people who would be interested in the fantasy part of it and then if they if they pick up a few period drama people on the way cool so yeah i mean the production company is mutant enemy productions um who made buffy the vampire slayer angel firefly dr horrible sing-along blog dollhouse basically well, there you go basically all um oh the cabin in the woods um which i'm sure people have heard of an agents of shield which is a marvel thing yeah. so it's all fantasy, fantasy. sci-fi yeah. stuff um and so you know it's kind of expected that they're going mainly for that audience i know that there's loads of people that cross over i might just be like one of those weird people that keeps things very separate in my brain but you know for those of us that do watch more period drama stuff than than other things it does just seem like sometimes that that can be confusing the way they've set this up so it'll be interesting going along with the series after this and seeing if i catch on easier or if it's um still difficult so yeah i think it's here it's kind of worth mentioning the role of women a little um because we've mentioned it a lot that you know women have been attacked and stuff and yet the main characters are women and things and um if anybody's been following the news regarding the creator there there's 
you know, there's a lot of kind of things to think about. But anyway, this show... Irony. Yeah. It's written by the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly, and among, amongst other things, like we said. But Buffy is kind of the, the relevant one here. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a show in the early 2000s that really solidified what strong female character meant at the time. Buffy was a young high school girl who literally kicked butt, vampire butt, around her town whilst also juggling school responsibilities, um, crushes on boys, and, and trying to feel like a normal teenager. The show was really good at exploring the nature of being a girly girl uh, and also being able to save the world from a vampiric men menace that most people couldn't dream of stopping and um, being the slayer was a calling and buffy didn't have a choice in the matter it was the growth of the character that was so compelling i mean it obviously remains to be seen whether the nevers will be able to kind of pull off the same development and growth in its characters um, but what is really positive to see is that the female characters of which many are obviously principal characters are varied complex and three-dimensional uh, mrs true as mentioned um is a widow so has some degree of like social protection that we've mentioned before um she's also a kick-ass fighter she runs the orphanage she can verbally duel a lord competently she's fiercely protective of the touched that she sees and, and takes care of but she is also a heavy drinker can barely stop herself from being in this berserker type rage um, and clearly has massive demons in her past as um, trigger warning she attempted suicide just as the anomaly occurred three years prior to the start of the show and then you know the sidekick miss adair is also competent she doesn't have the typical sidekick attitude they're they're like a, a more of a team than the typical kind of superhero yeah. sidekick duo and um, which is really refreshing to see you mentioned it earlier but like you know they're best friends and, yeah. and they cover for each other as much as you'd think a little bit because it's kind of like the age difference is almost mother-daughter-ish but it's not quite yeah you can see that one of them has a bit more of a youthful yes um demeanor than the other i yeah. guess that doesn't necessarily mean you're right that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got like a sidekick like main superhero well, thing going yeah. on but it does mean that they've got this dimension to their relationship that one is a bit more um stern while the other one yes. seems a bit more flowery to me yeah but also that kind of the flowery the softer character penance she actually she uses that to mother mrs true a little bit um amalia um, which is something that you'd typically see the other way around. Typically, it's the older woman that's going to do that for the younger. But in this case, the younger woman is looking after the older one. Yeah, I think, I think right off the the bat, these two women have like really strong performances. I definitely don't feel like that's the issue in my book with this show. I think if the show were a bit all over the place and the performances were cringy, we'd have a bit of a problem. Um, it'd be just a lot for somebody like me. But these two actresses bring a really strong performance. And I think they both fit well in the Victorian era. I think that, like, I could see them living at this time period. And I really think that, I like, they fit in this world. Um, I definitely like them so far. Amalia True is played by uh, Laura Donnelly. And Penance Adair is played by Anne Skilly. I've never really heard of these two actresses or seen them before. But I almost prefer that in a lot of ways because... Uh, when you have famous people and you stick them in a like a new show like this, uh, a lot of times you have preconceived notions about how their performance is going to be and 
what kind of character that they're going to bring to the table. So um, having these two women not really have a ton in their background, I think, is is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, we've also got Olivia Williams as um, one character. She's and... a strong actress. Mm-hmm. She played played Jane Austen in a version. I think it was oh, okay. like Jane Austen Regrets or something. It was one of the more realistic as far as you can be realistic with Jane Austen because there's a lot we don't know, but uh, one of the more like realistic versions of her life. Yeah. Good performance. Mm. Oh, and Eleanor Tomlinson from Poldark. That's a big one. So I think that's one of the interesting things about a show, particularly a new show. It's not based, it's not an adaptation. It's a, it's right. an original creation. Yeah. And so it's always interesting to have kind of relatively unknown actors in it. Um, when I originally was writing the notes for this, I was literally just looking at the episode list for the first season. And so far, the only thing that's mentioned are the six episodes. I kind of, I, I go on a, a mini rant here. I, I was talking about how six episodes is a rather abnormal number yeah. of episodes for a US show. It's It's very common for British television, but not for US television. So Game of Thrones started with 10 episodes, as did Westworld and Lovecraft Country. These are all HBO shows. And other HBO shows had like nine or eight episode season ones, Watchmen and True Detective, respectively. So it's obviously not concrete what shows in this science fiction fantasy genre are going to start with on HBO. Six just seemed rather low. Um, and initial reviews are mixed. Critics are rating it only 47% on Rotten Tomatoes and audiences are 81%. Now, Rotten Tomatoes usually shows a, a, a large difference between critics and audience ratings. Um, but, you know, whatever. Take it with a grain of salt. So it seems that many critics are uncertain with the show being able to pull off its disparate storylines um, and pull them together into a cohesive narrative. I mean, I'm a bit worried about that, to be honest with you. I just I just think in a lot of ways, the critics don't know what to make of this. Like they don't they don't know what box to kind of put it in. And they don't know if, yeah, some of this stuff that's been set up is going to pay off. I I'm not sure I agree with them, but that's because this kind of show fits perfectly into my boxes. Yeah, it, it ticks a lot of the things that I like from fiction. I think, unfortunately, though, it's going to have to tick more than just your boxes. Do you know what I mean? I, I like, know, 100%. I, th I think that something like Game of Thrones was able to very easily tick a lot of people's boxes, tick a lot of people's boxes that have never watched anything like Game of Thrones, a.k.a. me. So HBO is looking, and everywhere right now is probably probably looking for the next you know, Game of Thrones type thing to where they they have fantasy, they have adventure, they have superheroes, they have scandal, they have killers, you know, they have romance, whatever. And adding that all together and, and going, this is the perfect recipe for a massive hit. I don't know that The Nevers is that, but I think it's certainly a fun show. And do I think it's going to be this like breakout show that's going to be huge? No, probably not. But well, yeah, I think it would be interesting. I didn't look it up before we recorded, but it would be interesting to go back and look at what people said about Game of Thrones season one, just as it was released. Yeah. Um, and look at the numbers and stuff. So, so far, the ratings um, for the first four episodes have been roughly equal for each one. There's a bit of variance, but it's about half a million for each episode viewers so far. Um, episodes one and two have 0.3 million and 0.5 so half a million again um on the dvr as well so the total total viewers for the first two episodes are very close to a million each now that's not a lot no but you know it's held steady 
to me, this has got all the hallmarks of a cult classic. Just like Firefly. Firefly, even today, has diehard fans. Um, and I, th I feel like this show could be the same as that. It may not get the same kind of Game of Thrones treatment, um, but it could um, have that kind of underground hit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You could be right. Basically, they're releasing six episodes now, and then they'll release six episodes later on in the year. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I think, think it's stupid. I think it's dumb. I think people move on. It'll be really hard for them to slice a season in half and then expect for people to just wait around and be like, ooh, that was amazing. I just can't wait to see what's left. And I mean, I know people do that for full seasons, but to give people half a season and then expect them to just wait for another half of a season with these types of things people move on and they they watch other shows and if you think about like bridgerton i mean think about them stopping bridgerton at like episode five and being like okay well they've had a duel that's it now wait six months and we'll let you know whether or not this couple gets married i mean really who's gonna wait around for that i mean this is all part of the whole tv production thing that like i've always been frustrated with i don't enjoy used to be called terrestrial television but today is called linear television where it's broadcast um live you kind of get one chance to watch it kind of thing i mean these days you never have one chance to watch it it's always on catch-up but you know one episode a week that kind of a thing on a tv channel i've never enjoyed that for one i hate when an episode gets split up with adverts in between um it's why i like the bbc because it doesn't have adverts on on its shows but that that break in immersion is just so frustrating for me but then also when you've got things like this where you kind of go well where's the other half of the season yeah netflix was such a revolution in terms of how i consumed visual media before then I would literally wait an entire year for an entire season of a show to be out and then I'd buy the DVD box set. I just would not have the patience. If I was able to just watch it, you know, in a couple sittings over a couple of days um, or in one sitting, let's be honest with ourselves. Um, if I was able to do that, like I would, I feel like I'd be like, whoa, like can't believe that happened and that happened. And you're able to digest it all at one time, which is normally the way people kind of take in a book like people don't normally pick up a book and then a week later pick it up again like but, people okay, normally but, will read a book every single day until they finish it or like multiple times a week at least until they finish it do you know what i mean like i mean i was just gonna say though we're talking from our experience of of how we consume fiction yeah other people out there don't do that i i, I mean i know that there are people who will take weeks and months to read a book maybe that's um, true i i just i don't understand that kind of way no, of doing it I just because couldn't do that i just couldn't keep i just couldn't keep up with not knowing what happens and then i would just lose momentum and be like uh like i can't be bothered to figure out what happens now because i've waited so long if they had to do it for like literal covid safety measures then i find i'll accept that as a as a valid reason but at the same time, if if it was coronavirus related, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because surely it would take more effort to get every single crew member and actor back after a break than it would be to just do it all at one time in or, one compressed period. Because if you know everybody's been like safe and isolated, you're fine. So just record it all. Well, I don't, I don't know. We don't know how film sets work, but I. I do think the other solution would have just been to wait and not release it at the time you said, like people do yes. that all the time. There's loads of things that don't, I don't know if they were worried about things changing by that point or whatever, but 
in some ways, I think we came out of like this quarantine world that we have been in and technology gets running up again and everybody in society gets running up again. Like it will, this show will be more relatable. I think it will be even more like people would be even more invested later on once everything is back up and running than maybe they even would be right now. So like, yeah, but the thing is, You've got to you've got to also take into account that HBO is a money making um, corporation, and so you can't you can't sit on something for so long. If it's ready to go, it's very difficult for for them to sit on it because that's wasting money. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I get that. I'm just saying, like, maybe they even thought, look, everybody's sitting around right now at home. This is when they will watch this show. When the world opens it back up again, there's no guarantee they're going to watch it. So, you know, I, that I might think, be another thing is like, just get it out now and then we'll get out the rest of it at another time. I think they missed that train, though. I think that that would have been last year. Yeah, you're right, though. They, they could have just been like, no, we've got to do it now before people fully get back out there. So anyway, we've we've talked. I've, we don't have a timer running, so I have no idea how long we've talked for. So long. But it has been quite a long episode so far. So let's kind of get to our conclusions. Cause Wrap I, up here. Yeah, I think overall, I would say it was a positive start to a season of a show. I'm definitely intrigued. I'm feeling it. I want to watch more. And it's exactly the kind of thing I like of the books that I've mentioned on the podcast before, Spellbreaker and Spellmaker, um, which I believe you're listening to. I've just finished. The oh, first you just, just finished the first one? First one, yeah. Um, and so I would like to think that our listeners would enjoy The Nevers, but it is with the caveat that it's very different from Bridgerton and Austen novels. Very different. It's darker, much more graphic, and you can read that as men getting necks uh, sliced open. Um, on screen um, and it includes some some of the romp of Bridgerton but in a very Game of Thronesy way how do you feel that the listeners might fare with the nevers for some it'll be a perfect blend of genres we've had a couple different listeners read out reach out to us to talk about liking uh, historical fantasy books or a mix of genres so I think people are are already into a mix and into period dramas and so if you're into that kind of thing, it'll be a good mix for you. Mm -hmm. um, I will say just based off of the first episode, it does feel rather dark to me, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I've watched plenty of things that are dark and enjoy them because they were so well written or the characters are easy to relate to. But personally, I don't tend to go back and repeat watch those things. They are more of a one off to me. So I'll have to see whether or not this could garner a large ongoing audience. I think in terms of setting, this is very much like Carnival Row, like I said, which is an Amazon uh, Victorian show with Orlando Bloom. I will say this is the third Victorian era show that has come out in the last couple of years that involves a serial killer. So this Carnival Row and The Alienist. I enjoyed all three of those. Uh, they are good, but I was thinking that th this wouldn't necessarily involve the whole serial killer thing. Like I thought the other two shows were so into that, that like they wouldn't go there with this, but like the fantasy element would be enough and they would do something else with it. It just felt a bit predictable. Like when I found out that there was a serial killer, I was like, I, we, we've been doing this Victorian serial killer thing a whole lot lately. Fair to say like, I think it's attention grabbing. If you like Victorian things and Victorian period dramas, this might be a thing for you. If you don't like overly dark things, it might not be for you. So, you know, try it out at your own will, I guess. Well, no, so I just, yeah, I just want to say, I think, I don't know if we're going to do the rest of the, the episode no, for the podcast. Uh, sorry, the I season think it, for it'll podcast. depend. If, if you've listened and 
to the very end of this, I commend you. And if you have and you're like, I need to know more of what you think of the Nevers, then maybe we'd consider it. But at the current moment, no. It, it's definitely an interesting thing. I'm glad that we chatted about it. But um, yeah, we, we're not doing the full recap thing for it. We're going to be moving on. Yep. If there are any other shows uh, similar to this where, you know, they kind of come somewhat in the um, period drama circle um, that you would like us to consider discussing, even if it's just for a single episode, please do let us know on um, on email, aregencygirl at gmail.com or on the Facebook group. If you like the podcast, uh, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would really help us grow uh the podcast it really helps the magical the magical algorithms i don't really understand how that works but i know that it really helps us when you put reviews on there and it also helps us know that like you like the podcast that would be really helpful so the higher numbers of people reviewing the more that apple promotes podcasts to people as they search for related keywords and so we really appreciate when people are able to to leave a review that would be really sweet of you Thank you for listening to this episode of Regency Rumours, where we discussed nothing Regency related and no rumours. But if you did like this short dive into a new show that's parallel to your interest in Regency fiction, um, like we said, let us know on the Facebook group, um, which is facebook.com forward slash Regency Rumours with a U in it. Thank you, dear listener, for staying with us through this episode of Regency Rumours. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. I don't have anything to say in this episode. Yeah, not very fun ending, is it? No, I'm not that hungry. But you could make me food.